This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. In the late modern evangelical subcultures, there are many ways to draw a crowd, find an audience, or to publish a bestseller. Talking about wisdom, however, would not seem to be one of them. Nevertheless, that's exactly what we intend to do on Season 6 of Office Hours. If we reflect for just a moment, you and I will surely agree that few things are as needed as desperately as wisdom in our age. It's probably always been that way since the garden. When the tempter came to Adam, he placed before him a choice between two ways. The first man, Adam, had to choose between wisdom and eternal life with God or foolishness and death in the futile attempt to become as God. Though it does not seem to be a great theme in our culture or even in the church today, wisdom is a great theme throughout all of Scripture. And over the course of season six of Office Hours, we will trace out what Scripture says about it and what it means for the Christian life, for the church, for her ministry, and for our daily life serving Christ the King. Joining us to kick off Season 6 and to help us get started thinking about wisdom is W. Robert Godfrey. Bob is president of Westminster Seminary, California, and author of An Unexpected Journey, God's Pattern for Creation, and John Calvin, Pilgrim and Pastor. These and other faculty titles are available through the bookstore at wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Bob, and welcome back to Office Hours. Thanks, Scott. Great to be here with you again. Well, this is season six, and we're talking about wisdom. And as I said in the introduction, there's certainly no greater need, either in the culture or in the church, than wisdom. Why is there such a great need for wisdom? What creates that need? Well, I think as we look at the scriptures, we find at least in 1 Corinthians, uh, wisdom being contrasted with foolishness. And when you think of it in those terms, uh, we, at least those of us who are Christians, tend to look around and feel increasingly we're surrounded by people making really foolish choices. And as the foolishness, the general foolishness of our culture seems to be increasing, we do feel that increasing need for wisdom and discover it's rather challenging to try to figure out exactly what wisdom is. As I've thought about this conversation with you, I realized wisdom is a bit of a tricky subject. And while uh, it is easy to contrast it with foolishness, to try to define it in itself is a little more complicated, I think. Uh, You make a great point. I was just looking at Derek Kidner's introduction and commentary on Proverbs from the 1960s, and he lists uh, five different sort of facets or word groups for wisdom. And so it is complicated because it touches on a wide range of attitudes, ways of thinking, and behaviors and even skill sets. Right. And as I was trying to think about scriptural uses of wisdom, uh, in Deuteronomy 4, we're told that the law of God is our wisdom. In 1 Corinthians, we're told Christ is our wisdom. But in Proverbs, we're also reminded that God himself is wisdom. And so you have wisdom as part of the definition of God on the one hand, and then wisdom as part of what we are called to. And therefore, it seems to me that human wisdom properly conceived ought to be seen as part of the image of God that we bear. And that's an important part of the matter to keep in mind, it seems to me. Well, let's talk about the need for wisdom. 
for some reason or other, I'm not sure why, I got to thinking about Forrest Gump. And the reason I like that film is because it seems to me to, in important ways, to have captured an entire generation in a way that few films have done. And then that led me to think about 1967 and the Summer of Love and Haight-Ashbury. And that time in American history is often portrayed as a, a sort of a golden age, but it's a time when you can see an observable shift in the culture. If you see people in films from the period, you're quite likely to see men wearing hats and ties and coats and so forth when they're out of doors. But by 1967, there's a real shift and there's a, an outbreak of what older Christian writers would have called libertinism, which is really what the summer of love meant. It meant uh, free sex. And today, medical experts are writing articles about the summer of sexually transmitted diseases. You were not far from all of that growing up. And now here we are on the sort of outcome end of all of that, all of the consequences. Is the world getting worse or do we just know more about uh, what's taking place? Well, I think when you look back, say, at the 60s and what was going on then, it was a reaction in part of American society, probably a relatively small part of American society. I think that's often forgotten, but a reaction against tradition that didn't seem to have any clear foundation against what was seen as hypocrisy, as a lack of authenticity in living and a demand for freedom to be who we wanted to be and not to be constrained by limits that seemed not to be sensible or grounded in any real value. And in that sense, it's somewhat understandable because up until the 1960s, there were still a lot of Christian values proclaimed in the society on a surface level, but without a clear connection to Christ, no longer really rooted in a genuine Christian faith. And um, you can see that certainly in sexual morality, where there was a, a great commitment in the 1950s to the traditional marriage, to virginity before marriage, to faithfulness in marriage, to opposition to homosexuality. These were all traditional, you might say Christian values, we would say Christian values, but uh, no longer firmly rooted in Christ our wisdom. And therefore, when people began to challenge them, an awful lot of defenders of those traditional values didn't really have a very adequate defense. And people said, we're just being oppressed by these values. They seemed arbitrary. They seemed arbitrary. And, and in some ways driven, for example, by a fear of communism, right? So people who were growing up in the 1950s were exposed to a, a lot of rhetoric and, and a genuine concern about the, the Cold War, a possibility of a, of a nuclear war, a subversion of American culture from the outside by the communists, all of those things. So when you were 22, or 21, 20, and, and watching all of these things going on, did what we would think of as wisdom, rules about sexual chastity and the like, did it seem arbitrary to you and to your friends, or how did it appear? Well, I had been converted in high school, so I was no longer rootless the way a lot of my friends were who had been in college. And so it really seemed a lot of what was going on in the 60s that was more on the revolutionary side of things seemed foolishness to me at the time. And uh, Did you see your friends being persuaded by that? Oh, yeah. In college, yeah, quite a number were. When I was in college at Stanford, we were a little slower with the, the drug 
business. So drugs came to Stanford, I think, later than they came to Berkeley. And yeah, you could see the society confused. I mean, wh- where do we go from here? You could see people who didn't have a firm foundation in the biblical religion increasingly uncertain. What could they say? Parents were having trouble figuring out how to understand and what to say to their children as they matured about these very issues. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. How did your friends look at you since you had been converted to Christianity and so you were opting out of the social revolution that was going on around you? It was slightly patronizing. It was nice that some people still could delude themselves that there was meaning and truth that was transcendent and uh, find comfort and direction in that. So it was it wasn't antagonistic so much as slightly patronizing, you know. It, so it was okay for you. It was okay for me. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. what we think of is sort of a late modern attitude, subjectivist attitude towards truth. Well, that's true for you. It's good for right, you. Right. Right. Whatever gets you through the night. Right. But it's interesting. Today, Christians face more hostility, I think, than we did then, at least that I did personally, in that today, a lot of Christian attitudes, we're not even allowed to really believe those for us, much less for anybody else. So in that sense, the foolishness may well be increasing in the society as it becomes more cut off from traditional Christian values, much less from real Christianity. What about life in the church and various Christian subcultures? Are things more foolish? than they were, or have things changed dramatically since, let's say, the sexual revolution of the 1960s? Well, I think myself that the church has embraced a good bit of the foolishness of the world. In what ways? Well, in the 60s, it was still true that almost every Bible-believing church had a Sunday evening service as well as a Sunday morning service on the assumption that you learned more by being in church twice on Sunday than only once on Sunday, that worshiping God was a a good thing to do, and that worshiping twice on Sunday was more valuable than what you would otherwise be doing Sunday evening, that in most Bible-believing Protestant churches in America, there was a measure of Sabbatarianism still embraced, that Sunday was the Lord's day, not the Lord's hour, and that Sunday as a day was set apart for the Lord. We're not free to choose whatever day we want to worship Him. All of those were part of the wisdom of the church, and um, not just a narrow, reformed part of the church, but really pretty broadly. And all of that has been abandoned on the assumption, I think the fallacious, unwise, foolish assumption, that evangelism will be advanced if we make Christianity easier. Uh, Now, some people have said, well, we need to make it more comprehensible. I'm all in favor of making Christianity more comprehensible. I think as we are increasingly living in what is probably appropriately called a post-Christian era, we do have to recognize that uh, lots of people in our culture are going to find Christianity a surprise, strange. We have to work harder at figuring out how we communicate. But figuring out how to communicate is different from dumbing down and is different from making it easy. I think it's hard to read the scriptures and conclude that Jesus ever intended Christianity to be easy. It's free, but it's not easy. So I think with most of the time very good intentions and good motivations, many leaders of the church have led the church into more and more foolish notions of how we can promote evangelism, discipleship, worship. Or even influence on the culture. And influence on the culture, yeah. Christianity has to be more accessible, less demanding in order to get more people connected to it, involved in the church, so that we can influence them and then thereby influence the culture. 
Right. And so, you know, there are lots of Christians who think that we need to promote faith. Any Promoting any kind of faith is a good thing. We need to promote prayer. Any kind of prayer is a good thing. That's just patently not true. It's faith in Christ that's important. It's prayer to the true and living God that's important. And the more I study Scripture, the more impressed I am by the call of Scripture uh, from beginning to end that we are to be a separated people and that God is jealous for the loyalty of his people. And that needs to be a factor that we take much more seriously than I think much of the church is today. Isn't it true that in the modern church, as the mainline denominations, for example, consciously decided to be broad rather than narrow, on the theory that if they were narrow, they would lose their social influence, they've actually become less influential. The mainline Presbyterian church, for example, has been losing members at an astonishing rate, such that if it continues, it won't exist in really just a few years. Well, absolutely. And the numbers are reported by mainline churches, we always have to remember, are grossly inflated numbers. They report numbers on membership roles rather than numbers of worshipers regularly on Sunday. And uh, already the mainline churches, in terms of people who actually show up on Sunday, are vastly smaller than the numbers they report. But even the numbers they report are steadily declining. So isn't that a great example of foolishness in that, to give a concrete example, we set out to be influential in the culture, and in order to achieve that goal, we lowered standards. And there is a well-known book about that process by a relatively well-known Presbyterian historian called The Broadening Church, which led to, demonstrably, statistically, the virtual destruction of the church. And yet that very pattern is not only continuing, but accelerating, such that people are not just leaving as individuals, but entire congregations are leaving for other denominations in, again, remarkable numbers and with remarkable speed now. Right. I've long talked about the need for someone to write a book entitled The Myth of Influence. If you look at history, what you discover is that the really influential people in history did not seek to be influential by calculating how easy they could make things and how many people they could attract. Rather, they became influential by having a clear vision of what they wanted to accomplish and without compromise going after that or with very little compromise going after that. We tend to think that influence is to be achieved today by compromising at every point, and I think that almost never works and uh, is proving disastrous for churches in America. If we think about the early church, they were faced with an enormous pressure in the early second century to compromise, and in some ways that we might not think as being very significant. For example, authorities would arrest a Christian and require of them to say, Caesar is Lord, and to denounce Jesus. They didn't require of them to believe that Caesar was God, and they didn't require of them to believe that Jesus was not God the Son, but simply to say the words and to conform outwardly to Greco-Roman culture. And many Christians chose not to do that at the expense of their own lives. And the Christian church, which was made up of, to a large degree, people who were not socially influential, not to say there were none, but by and large, became, in the centuries leading up to Constantine, remarkably influential. That's sort of paradoxical, isn't it? 
Well, it is. And I think if you're trying to learn lessons from history, which uh, in my vast experience as a historian seems almost never to happen, uh, you'll appreciate this. I was just reading the latest New Yorker and there was a cartoon in there and there's a king sitting on his throne talking to a couple of courtiers and the king says, I'm really worried about my legacy. And then he says, let's kill all the historians. Uh, so, uh, but relatively few people are even interested in what the historians are doing. But if we want to learn anything from history, we might say, when the Christians in the ancient church refused to say Caesar is Lord, what should that tell us about participating in worship services with non-Christians? It seems to me it's exactly the same. If we participate in worship services with non-Christian religions, we are really saying everybody is Lord, anybody can be Lord. It doesn't really matter whether we are single mindedly, faithfully devoted to the Lord God alone, we can get along and it'll be good for the world to get along. It's critical to get the gospel right because it is the good news of the work of Jesus Christ that is saving. W. Robert Godfrey for Westminster Seminary, California. Uh, We need the whole Bible. We need the whole message of the Bible. We need the help of the law. We need the crushing work of the law. We must never undervalue or underestimate the importance of the law. But it is what Christ did that is saving. And what by trusting in what Christ did, uh, we are saved. It is by receiving the gospel in faith that we are justified. And all the other benefits and fruits of Christ's work flow out of that. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His gospel, and His church. Is it even thinkable to you that a minister in the second century church would have been permitted to be, at least outwardly, homosexual and a minister? No. There's not a single case that I can imagine where that would have been permitted. The early Christians were known for the strictness of their discipline, right? such that oftentimes catechumens were kept out of the celebration of the Lord's Supper. The gathering was virtually emptied of everyone who was not actually admitted to the Lord's table, and yet that seemed to make people want to join the church. So in other words, their strategy for church growth, if you will, not that they were thinking in those terms, was exactly the opposite of the way that we seem to go at it most of the time these days. Right, and the Christian's attitude towards sexuality, which wasn't always perfect in the ancient church. I mean, there are some strange things that developed. They were too anti sex in in the ancient church. And suspicious of the human body in a way that sometimes wasn't very healthy. So, as many people have said, the only problem with Christianity is Christians. But it certainly is true that by strictly adhering to certain standards of morality and of sexual morality, in time, Christians managed to change the attitudes of a whole culture towards sexuality. Really, and oftentimes through persuasion rather than coercion. Not to say there was never any coercion, particularly after the fourth and fifth centuries. But prior to that point, the only authority we had was a moral, spiritual authority through explaining, teaching, preaching. And what's really interesting is uh, I think some of the more recent studies of the ancient church have shown that part of what uh, made Christianity so attractive is how good Christianity was for women, that the role of the wife is suddenly exalted, the role of the mother is suddenly exalted beyond what it had been. Uh, I was reading a book recently, and part of what it was arguing is the huge number of women in the ancient Roman world who were prostitutes, 
uh, driven into prostitution, sort of enslaved in prostitution, and given no sort of respect or protection in law, and that Christianity came and stood against that and really liberated a very large part of society from that kind, or at least labored to liberate a large part of society from that kind of oppression. Which is quite like something we're seeing today, or at least an analog, in that the sex trade has become a booming business in part facilitated by the internet and relatively easy access to international travel and the like. And there has developed a large Christian opposition to, largely led by Christians, to the sex trade and the abuse that follows for females and others. Absolutely. But you can even carry that a step further and say, although most people don't want to really look at it in our time, is it really good for women to have all this premarital sex going on? How's it affecting the institution of marriage? How's it affecting women in terms of long-term relationships with men? Are women being, once again, simply used and then cast aside by a lot of men? I think there's a really dark side. There's a real great foolishness to the sexual mores that are now championed, certainly in television and sitcoms in our society. Film and, and media generally. I mean, pornography is probably right. the single biggest enterprise on the internet, and women are certainly not benefiting from that and oftentimes being exploited by that. Well, let's try to harness some of this and uh, focus it relative to foolishness and wisdom. We started off by saying that it's difficult to characterize wisdom in part because there are so many facets to it. But let's see if we can give some sort of thumbnail characterizations, and let's go at it by looking at its opposite. What is foolishness? And in the introduction, just to give some context, I rooted foolishness in the garden, because uh, in Scripture, wisdom is often presented uh, relative to two ways, and the first time we see somebody with a choice between two ways is the first man, Adam, in the garden. Right, and you can think of the Psalter, where twice we are reminded the fool says in his heart there is no God. I think if I wanted to try a very brief difference definition of the difference between wisdom and foolishness, I would want to start by saying wisdom always takes God into account, foolishness never does. And so the heart of a biblical conception of wisdom is that it's connected with God. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. That's where wisdom has to originate and where human beings, to a greater or lesser extent, eliminate God from the way in which they think, to that extent, they are moving towards foolishness. When the tempter came to Adam and Eve, he's not described as wise, but he is described as crafty. Right. Isn't that interesting? And obviously, Adam was intentionally, we would say, placed in a probationary setting, given all that he needed in order to make the right choice. In other words, contrary to the way that the medieval church came to think and that others have thought over the history of the church, Adam wasn't broken. He wasn't defective. He was created righteous. He was good. He was holy. And he had within him the potential to make the right choice. Now, mysteriously, he didn't. But let's think about that confrontation between the the tempter, and the tempted. What is, if we can put ourselves in Adam's shoes, what's the nature of the choice he made? What did the tempter offer him? Well, it seems to me at the very heart of it is precisely this invitation to take God out of the equation. Did God really say? And it's subtle, right? Because it it doesn't obviously exclude God, but it sort of implicitly or effectively excludes God. Is that fair? Yes, and I think it raises a great Protestant point that the devil really comes and says, you know, the Word of God is not as perspicuous as you think it is. It's not clear. Now let's think about this. We have Christians today who are constantly failing to take into account the clear Word of God. 
You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Perspicuity of God's revelation is essential, and perspicuity is a, a big old word that we like to use to describe the clarity of Scripture. What Adam needed to know, he could have known. He did know. So, obviously, there's no Bible in the garden, but he did have a word from God, which said, you can eat from any tree in this garden except from this one. The day you eat from this one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. Now, now, I bet even you can understand that, Scott, <laughs> as, a, as a clear, understandable statement, right? Well, the Spirit helping me, exactly. And, and Adam didn't have the deficit of sin, which is almost impossible for us to really imagine what it's right. like to live in a world where your mind, your affections, your will, none of those things are bent, broken, or clouded right. by sin. And yet, Adam knew. Adam wasn't sitting around thinking, well, you know, I wonder what he means by tree, that's sort of ambiguous. A tree, I mean, does he mean it literally? Does he mean metaphorically? Which is what people do, right? Right, exactly, exactly. But that's the key, I think, to wisdom at every point in the Bible, is the subtle or not-so-subtle invitation to remove God and his revelation from the equation, from the analysis. And uh, I was thinking about Augustine's confession and his writing about his mother, who is not a well-educated woman. And part of the way in which Augustine looks back on his own life is to say, I became an educated person. I was filled with knowledge. I knew all sorts of things. I could feel proud and superior to my mother because she wasn't well-educated. She didn't know a lot of things. But although I had a lot of knowledge, she had a lot of wisdom. And I think we find that tension surrounding us all the time because we're constantly appealing to experts who have a lot of knowledge and very little wisdom over against the scriptures, which are constantly being attacked for not having enough knowledge. I don't think that's a fair attack, but that's the way the attack goes. And missing the wisdom that abounds in the scriptures. Which is why scripture says that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. When Job asks in Job 28, 12, where is wisdom found? Where is the place of understanding? Not where is the place of knowledge or learning mm -hmm. facts, right. but actually understanding. And he answers the question in the same chapter in verse 28, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. So Adam, to go back to our first example, needed to fear God. Right. Even though he was tempted, and even though he was interested, and even though the possibility of becoming like God was obviously very desirable, what he needed to do was to say, no, God said, my father said to me, I can eat of any tree, but not this one. And I may not fully understand why I may not eat of this tree. And while what you're offering is very desirable, I'm going to trust my father. I'm going to obey my father and believe that he has my best interests at heart. Right. And that's why the failure of Adam in the garden stands in such sharp contrast with the success of Jesus in the wilderness, where Jesus, at every point where the tempter comes against him, responds citing the word of God. Jesus illustrates the fear of the Lord by his trust in the clarity and sufficiency of the scriptures. Jesus doesn't say, well, who really knows what it means to say every word that proceeds? You know, what kind of word? What do we mean by proceed? He didn't go at it that way. And again, once again, the tempter offered him something that was desirable, right? He took him to the high place and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And how often does that happen in our lives in various ways, right? And Jesus, as the last man, the second Adam, uh, the last Adam, did what the first Adam refused to do, which was essentially what? To submit 
To fear God. Fear God. So explain what fear means in this context in Proverbs and in Job. When we say fear God, the listener may say, well, God is my father and he loves me. Why should I fear him? What does that mean? Well, I think in this context, fear means, to try to render it in slightly more modern English, to be filled with awe about the true character of God, uh, to recognize he's smarter than I am, he's more powerful than I am, he sees the end from the beginning in a way that I can't possibly, and therefore it's to recognize God as God, as creator, as infinite. And and ourselves for what we are. That's right, which is, uh, in our case, fallen, sinful, finite, not knowing very much, and therefore needing to rely upon the wisdom of God, the revelation of God. So this isn't really complicated. I didn't say it was easy, but it's not all that complicated. The foundations are not complicated, no. Sometimes the working out of some elements are complicated. But for Christians, constantly come back to the question, in making this decision, am I making the fear of the Lord, the awesome character of the Lord, the revelation of the Lord foundational to what I'm doing? That'll make life a lot easier on an awful lot of decisions. And so just as soon as you say that, every honest Christian says to himself, that's what I should do, but I really don't do that the way I should. So, Pastor— and, and, and part of the problem is that we don't do it because we don't want to do it. Okay. We know what we want to do, and then we want to find a way to justify what we want to do. Which is a form of foolishness, but it's very seductive and very powerful. So, what do you have to say to the Christian who, having heard this, is thinking to himself, well, that, yeah, that's right, that's good, but boy, I'm a fool. How can you encourage that one? Well, uh, when we recognize our foolishness, we have to repent of it and ask God to forgive us and recognize that by his grace and spirit, he'll help us. And then we have to be willing to really try to think things through. I mean, to use a, a fairly mundane example, many of us, God has called into families. Many of us, God has given children. We know God wants us to value our families, to raise our children. And therefore, since family is such an important institution, when my kids want to play soccer on Sunday morning, uh, I should take them to play soccer and I can go to church another time. No, foolish, foolish, foolish. You're denying God's ordinance of the Sabbath day. You're denying God's call to worship and be under the preaching of his word. And you're teaching your children that soccer is more important than God. So wisdom means not rationalizing. It means dealing squarely with things. Right. And I think we have to recognize, especially as fallen people, we're not up to being wise all by ourselves all the time. We need the help of the Christian community in thinking through issues where we might be clever enough to deceive ourselves and rationalize things we oughtn't rationalize, and we need the community to come and help us. And that's why it's so sad when the church itself becomes foolish. Because then you've lost your primary resource. Yep, exactly. And that's why it's so crucial to be in a good church, where you have a minister faithfully telling you what God really says in the Bible. There might be, because we don't know where this is going and who's going to hear this and when, under what circumstances, there might be someone who really is a fool who says to himself, well, maybe God is, I don't know, and maybe there really is a fixed moral code and truth and salvation and all of that, but who really knows? You know, as long as that works for you, which gets us back to 1967, then that's good, but I don't know that anybody else is really obligated to that. What do you have to say to the fool? 
Well, of course, you never can penetrate foolishness except where the Spirit of God is at work. You can't do it just by reason or some neutral ground on which to stand. But what you want to say to the fool is you don't live any other part of your life so unreflectively. You plan, you think, you try to reason. And when it comes to these really foundational matters of truth, you have to apply yourself a little bit and ask, does it seem at all reasonable that we live in a universe that's orderly if there is no order giver? And um, if there is a creator who has brought order to the universe and created man, isn't it likely that he communicates with us, that he, he speaks to us? This is the testimony of the church. This is what has brought wisdom and blessing and grace and a great deal of love into the world. We can't put forth the Christian community as a perfect community in any sense, but it is a community in which there is, at its best, something different happening that stands against the self-destructiveness of the world. In that same period as the Summer of Love, there was a musical that gained a large audience, Jesus Christ Superstar, was decried by a lot of Orthodox Christians, probably for good reason, the Second Commandment being chief among them. But what does Jesus, whom the hippies recognized as a quote-unquote superstar, have to say to the fool? As the fool is thinking to himself, well, who really knows if any of this is true? There looms this figure, Jesus. And try as the fool may, he can't simply erase him. Jesus is a historical fact. He came, he lived, he taught, he died, and people saw that the tomb was empty. They saw his risen body. Uh, There were 500 witnesses. Those are historical facts. How do those facts testify to the fool? Well, they do, of course. The problem is, of course, that to say Jesus Christ is a superstar is a very foolish thing to say. Well, indeed, yes. And that the scriptures portray Jesus not as a superstar, but as a servant. The amazing thing about the first coming of our Lord is how unstar-like it was that he had no former comeliness that we should desire him. He took on the form of a servant. He lived his life in the form of a servant. There were testimonies born to him of his glory, but the life itself is lived in a pretty ordinary way. Relative obscurity. Um, Relative obscurity, and that was so that he would manifest himself as the last Adam and as the true man. The true man is not a rock star. The true man is the one who lives for God and for his neighbor. And that's what Jesus did perfectly and therefore became for us an example, but more than an example, a savior. Uh, And the fool needs a savior. The fool needs a savior. And there is a savior. And there is a savior. And there is a savior who will come and save no matter how foolish we have been, if we will recognize our foolishness and trust in him. And that's the glory of the gospel message. There is no fool so foolish that he's left helpless, hopeless. Any fool, like you and me, can turn to Christ and find forgiveness and life in him. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.